0: This evening, as we consider God's Word, we'll do so from Exodus 20, and we're going to be looking at the third commandment found in Exodus 20, verse 7. Uh, but, but again, uh, in order to be refreshed and become extremely familiar with the Ten Commandments, we want to read uh, all of the law of God, beginning in verse 1 and reading through to verse 17. So Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, we're going to be focusing tonight on the third commandment as it's found In verse 7, Exodus 20, where God's word reads as follows. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth a sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So far, the reading from God's Word this evening May He add His blessing to our hearts. We continue working our way uh, through the Ten Commandments, considering specifically the first table of the law. You remember the first table of the law means the first four commandments, the commandments that are set apart, that deal with our relationship with God. And the second table of the law, commandments 5 through 10, are the ones that deal with our fellow man. Well, God, in His providence, when He gives His law... He gives the commandments that govern our relationship with Him first, and with that foundation laid, He will move on to the second table where we look at our relationship with our fellow man. But the first and most important aspect of living is to have our relationship with the Lord properly understood. And what we've seen so far as we consider this first table of the law, we've seen this common theme within the commandments, these first four commandments. We've looked at commandments one and two. We've kind of done a 30,000 foot overview of all the commandments, but we've seen that in the first table of the law, the thing that, that binds all these commandments together is this aspect of worship. How man relates to God is governed by worship. There's no other way for man to come to God other than in worship. And the third commandment really is no different. As part of the first table of the law, again, this commandment is going to have something to do with worship. And what we see in the third commandment is that the third commandment is governing the inside of man. It's governing the heart of man. How man is to approach God in worship. With what kind of heart does man come into the presence of the Lord? And what we see in the third commandment is that the holiness of God is to be preserved in the heart of man by guarding his speech and his actions. And to learn the lessons of this commandment, we want to look at three things in verse 7. We first want to see the gravity of this commandment. Then we want to see the meaning of this commandment. And finally, we want to look at the applications of this commandment. So we want to learn that the holiness of God is to be preserved in the heart of man by guarding His speech and His actions. And we're going to see the gravity of the commandment, the meaning of the commandment, and the application of the commandment. So first, we're going to go a little bit backwards. In, the, in this sermon on the third commandment, we're going to reverse the order of the text. I want to look first at the reason that is given for obedience this, to this commandment. And I want to do that because this commandment of maybe all of the commandments is seen as unimportant among the people of God. Now, of course, not officially, right? Not in our, uh, when we talk about the third commandment, we don't come to it and say, well, the third commandment is not really an important commandment. We don't really need to concern ourselves with it too much. But you can see it unofficially uh, in the behavior, in the choices, ...or even in the neglect of this commandment. And so the first order of business when we come to this third commandment... ...is to establish or in a sense re-establish... ...the urgency of heeding this commandment. It says, "...as the reason for obeying this commandment... ...the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain." And when you are familiar with the scripture that can just roll off your tongue... ...and you can just read it like it doesn't matter... But that should be a a clause in Scripture that should make you stop and that should make you consider the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, as an illustration, I want to talk about a man that we have talked about before together, but I want to remind you of this man. There was a man in this congregation a number of years back who was dying. And he was dying as an older gentleman And I had the privilege as his pastor of walking with him during the last days that God gave him in this world. And so I had the blessing of going to visit him at Eisenhower Hospital on uh, Fort Gordon. Now he was in Eisenhower Hospital because he had served this country uh, in the Korean War. And as this former soldier lay in his room in Eisenhower, he was filled with dread. And he was filled with dread in a way that most Christians today are not. He was filled with dread because his company had been instructed to take high ground from the enemy. And so they had to charge up a hill under heavy enemy fire. And as he was facing the end of his days, he was in turmoil. And the turmoil was written all over his face. He, he confessed the reason for that turmoil in his heart. And he confessed it to me by saying that when he ran up that hill, under all that pressure, and as an unbelieving man, when he ran up that hill, he had cursed the name of God. And the third commandment was haunting him. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. He had repeatedly blasphemed God's name. He recognized it correctly as a great evil. And then the great weight of this verse would just not let him go. It says in the Bible, The Lord will not hold me guiltless for my blasphemy. Will I meet my maker guilty of blasphemy? And so his heart was was weighed down. It was almost despairing as he faced his his final days. Uh, That was the case until the promises of the gospel took hold of him. Uh, Until after the reviewing of God's word and, and setting before him the promises of forgiveness to the repentant man, until that gospel promise took hold of him, until he realized that the blood of Christ covers all his sins over which we repent, his face was serious, his face was heavy. Now when he understood the gospel, it was the great blessing of seeing a man completely changed, of seeing a man enter into glory with so much joy, despite his sin, despite what he knew to be true about himself, because of the work of Christ, it was a, a marked change in this man. But, I want to focus more on what I think is a proper assessment of him. This man who lay dying in the hospital, he understood the third commandment in a way that many Christians do not. He understood the gravity of breaking the third commandment, of living in defiance of the holy name of God, defaming the name of God in speech, and as we will see In this sermon as well, we can defame God's name in action. Only after he understood the gospel was he able to see his father and not his judge. But today, we need more of the heaviness about this commandment. We need more of a sense of terror at the warning that is given in this commandment. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. At the very least, what God's reason for this commandment gives us is a prohibition against a casual response, right? At the very least we can't be flippant about taking the Lord's name in vain. But flippancy, I would suggest to you, flippancy is exactly the posture that is accepted by many Christians today when it comes to the third commandment. So I want us to see, first of all as a congregation, the great gravity and the great severity of what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. The Lord does not hold him guiltless who takes His name in vain. So having, having reignited our sense of understanding of the gravity of this commandment, now I want to spend some time thinking about the meaning of this commandment. We want to consider the third commandment. Now, First, we remember, as we do with all the commandments, that when a commandment says, you shall not, there is an opposite implication of what you shall. So the third commandment is a you shall not. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. There is a corresponding you shall that sits on the other side of this commandment. Now, we want to begin by thinking about what this commandment explicitly states. The third commandment prohibits something specific. It prohibits taking God's name in vain. Well, well, what does it mean to take God's name in vain? Well, there is a range. There's a range of meaning, and and I'm not being mealy-mouthed about it. We see this range of meaning within the confines of Scripture. And what you have when you come to the Ten Commandments, all of the Ten Commandments... The commandments uh, are not uh, narrow in terms of what they are restricting, what they are requiring. The commandments are simply listing the most egregious offense against God in one specific aspect of Christian living. So in the first one, who should be worshipped? The second one, how he should be worshipped, the most egregious offense against God and. In, in worshiping him falsely is the setting up of an idol to worship him through it, but here we come to the third commandment, which is really the spirit of worship, how we are to hold god 's name in reverence and awe that 's what sits underneath all of it. And what we read in the third commandment, verse seven, "Do not take the name of, your, of the Lord your God in vain is simply defining the most egregious violation of this of this commandment, this, this, this principle that should be true in the Christian life that God should be approached in reverence and awe well the most egregious way to break this commandment is to display the contempt that you have in your heart for God with a verbal confirmation of what resides in there it's a it's a verbal confirmation that you despise the living God that's that's what the third commandment is driving us towards helping us to see the most egregious violation of what it means to fail to hold God's name in reverence and awe. So, uh, how broad is that teaching? When when we think about holding the name of the Lord in reverence and awe, how broad does that go? Well, the third commandment, as I've said before, is really understood by a consideration of the rest of Scripture. The rest of Scripture will have different accounts, will have different commandments that are derived from the moral law, as it's summarized in the Ten Commandments, specifically the Third Commandment. And so as you look at the rest of Scripture, you will see things that are forbidden and things that are required when it comes to reverencing the name of God. And so because the Third Commandment deals with what you shall not do, that's where we're going to start tonight as well. First, we're going to look at what is forbidden in the third commandment. And the first thing that we see, both in the words of the third commandment, but also in, in scripture more broadly speaking, is that blasphemy in word is forbidden by the third commandment. We cannot speak in a derogatory way of the name of God. And we can see that in scripture in an account in Leviticus 24. Leviticus 24 has the account of a, a, a man who lives among the Israelites. His mother was an Israelite. His, his father, I think, was an Ammonite. But anyways, the people of Israel overhear him blaspheming the name. He, cur- he uses God's name as a curse word. And the people of Israel properly recognize that this is an offense. And so they, they arrest this man. They, they hold him in custody until they find out from Moses what they are to do with this man. And in verse 16 of Leviticus 24, the sentence comes down. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. So, using God's name as a curse word, listen now, using God's name as a curse word in Scripture is a capital crime. Do you believe that? Do you believe that using God's name as a curse word is a capital crime? But God forbids more than than just blasphemous words. He also shows us in Scripture that there's blasphemy in our action and also blasphemy because of our action. So we don't just uh, treat God's holiness with contempt because of what we say. We can also treat God's name with contempt because of what we do. Or because of what we do, someone else can view God's name in a contemptuous way and that is laid out for us in 1 Timothy 6 that's where you see the application of the actions of the believer and the importance of those actions in maintaining the holiness and the reverence of God's name and it's it's used in a in a in a context that's very unpopular very unpopular, even as Christians, oftentimes we shy away from talking about this. But here the Apostle Paul is addressing Christian slaves. And the Apostle Paul is addressing Christian slaves, urging them to continue to serve their master in a way that is honorable and in a way that is exemplary. Now listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Why? So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So what's the Apostle Paul saying? The Apostle Paul is saying to slaves, treat your masters with honor so that God's name will not be blasphemed. Treat your masters with honor so that the third commandment is not violated. That's what he's saying. So it's not just blasphemy in word. We're not just thinking about uttering God's name as a curse word, which is the most egregious manifestation of contempt for God in your heart, but you also manifest it in the way that you live. Not only can your actions show your contempt for God, but also your actions can cause other people to view God with contempt. The same principle is laid out for us in In Acts 5, that's where you have the account of Ananias and Sapphira. What do Ananias and Sapphira do? Well, well, they use God's worship to further themselves. They use God's worship hypocritically so that their standing in the congregation will be increased. So they're using God's name, but they're using God's name as a stepping stone. They're using God's name really to promote themselves. They're they're using God's name in that way and the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And you see that with Ananias and Sapphira. What happens with Ananias and Sapphira when Peter confronts them with their hypocrisy? When they insist on maintaining their hypocrisy, God strikes them dead. God does not allow them to continue living. Both Ananias and Sapphira struck down for their hypocritical worship. Using worship for personal promotion. Ananias and Sapphira, in using worship, the worship of God as a tool for personal advancement, are encouraging other people to do the same. They are encouraging the saints to take God's name in vain, to use Him as a stepping stone instead of ascribing all glory and power and dominion and worship to Him. And the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. So there's not to be any form of making God's name common. None, none of it is to be tolerated, whether it be in word or in action. They all have the same end. Speech or action can bring the holiness of God into ill repute it can lower the holiness of God in the eyes of men. we can never truly lower the holiness of God because he is beyond change but in the eyes of people our words our actions can cause the name of the Lord to be held in low esteem or we can show how lowly we think of God through our speech and our actions now What we have to remember in the third commandment is wherever you have a shall not in scripture, there is a corresponding you shall. There is what's forbidden, and then there's the opposite that is true as well. There's what's forbidden, and then there's also what is commanded. And so we want to think about that next. We want to think about what God commands us on the flip side of this third commandment. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is very helpful for us as it seeks to summarize scripture In question and answer 54, it gives us the requirements of the third commandment. It says, The third commandment requireth the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. In other words, anything to do with God, the people of God are to do it with reverence. We are to treat God reverently. God is holy. That means He is set apart. He's not like anything else. That is, in this world, we're not to put Him in the same category with anybody else in this world. He is not to be made a common thing. We're not to talk about God like we would talk about a fancy car or a, or a good job or a famous person. All things that have to do with God are to be held in high esteem. And when we look, again, broader Scripture, we can see Two positive ways in which God's name is reverenced by the people of God. First of all, you see the people of God honoring God privately. The Christian life uh, is, is worked out by growing in your knowledge of the biblical notion of vice and virtue. Now, that's not moralism, right? I'm not saying the end of Christianity is to live a good life. What I'm saying is, when you live under the gospel, when you live under the reality of what Christ has done for you, you, have, you begin a process, this process of sanctification, where you learn to despise sin, vice, and you learn to love the commandments of God, virtue. And the Christian life is about growing in this grace, growing in this sanctification as, uh, as you go from day to day. That's because... The God who saves you is also the God who sanctifies you. And you see that working itself out specifically in in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. There the Apostle Paul is talking about the goal of the Christian life, the goal of the Christian life being to glorify God. And he says in verse 31, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever we're doing, we're to reverence God in that. It doesn't matter if you are changing uh, diapers in your house, if you're the CEO of a big corporation, uh, or, or if you are, uh, are working a construction job, if you're serving our country in the military, what, whatever it is you're doing, all of it is to be done for the glory of God. His name is to be lifted up. When you're doing that mundane thing in your life and you think nobody's paying attention, you're doing it for the glory of God, that God's name would in fact be exalted, not brought low. So instead of taking His name in vain, what we want to do is set apart His name as holy in whatever it is that we find ourselves doing. So that's where you see the opposite. The opposite of taking God's name in vain is glorifying the name of God. And so we as Christians, in honoring the third commandment, are called to do that privately. Whatever it is we're doing, whether we're eating or drinking, we're to do all for the glory of God. But then we're also called as Christians to honor God publicly. Service to God is never a private enterprise. It's never given in isolation. The Christian community is a body That means they are connected to each other. And we, when we worship God, do it as part of a living organism, part of the body of Christ. We have seen that before in Hebrews 10, 24. Worship to God is an essential and it has a definite corporate component. And so uh, later on in Hebrews chapter 12, that's why the the writer there urges reverence and awe for corporate worship. He says there, let us offer to God acceptable worship. How? With reverence and awe. So if the prohibition in the third commandment is you shall not take His name in vain, then the opposite virtue that we see in Hebrews 12 is this idea of reverence and awe that God's name is to be glorified, not only privately, but also in our corporate and public worship. Notice Hebrews 12 doesn't say you should offer God acceptable worship when you're at home. No, it says, let us, first person, plural, a corporate public aspect to the worship of God, which should be done, it says in, the, in Hebrews 12, according to the third commandment with reverence and awe. Now, during the sermon on the second commandment, we talked about the regulative principle of worship, right? This this uh, theological summary of scripture that says, in worship, we are only free to do what God commands. And as part of that sermon, we talked a little bit about how the regulative, the regulative principle of worship doesn't address what we consider to be difficulties that have arisen as part of our contemporary worship. And so we have seen that the that the the regulative principle of worship, even though we are called uh, to raise our eyes up to heaven, uh, that we are not given specifics about instrumentation. We're not given specifics about song selection. We're not given specifics about how long, how many, uh, uh, and how long the prayers, and how long the sermon, and those kinds of things. But what the third commandment tells us, when it tells us, that we in our corporate worship are to do so with reverence and awe, there it does address some of the issues that we see that come into contemporary worship. At the very least, the third commandment prohibits, refuses to allow kind of a casual, flippant, man-centered attitude towards God in worship. The third commandment says that cannot creep into The corporate worship of God. God is holy. His name is to be revered. His name is to be held in awe. His name is to be set apart from everything else. And so in worship, we cannot and will not be casual and flippant. So the third commandment says you shall not make God's name common, whether it be in speech or in action. And on the other side, it says you shall revere God's name, whether it be privately or corporately. You will hold God's name in high esteem. So let's think now about how we apply this commandment in 2020. There are definitely considerations for the church today where the significance of this commandment has to be, in a sense, rediscovered. In a sense, as a church, we're not unlike Israel, who found the law and had to relearn the law during the reign of Josiah. How is the third commandment broken today. Well, the third commandment continues to call the Christian to use God's name with reverence and awe, never irreverently or to denigrate His name. And so therefore, we have to consider two aspects for approaching God. We have to consider the reverence of our treatment of God and His name, both privately and corporately. So, first, I want us to think as a congregation about how privately the third commandment continues to have a bearing on us. The Christian is called by the third commandment to preserve and to promote the holiness of God in our speech and in our action. And that means that God's name is to be protected by us, God's name is never to be flippantly uh, overlooked. Uh, We are to jealously protect God's name against blasphemy and against actions that originate from within us that would cause others to blaspheme God's name. Now, uh, there are the the obvious usual suspects, right? There's the low-hanging fruit, right? So we're not to take God's name in vain, Okay, I think most Christians understand that. I think most Christians would even understand the danger of using words that sound very much like God's name in your casual conversation where you don't know if it's going to be blasphemy until you hear the last sound of that word. Uh, I think Christians understand that there's uh, some, some danger in the use of those words. I think Christians understand the danger of using God in jesting or in joking I think Christians even understand the danger of addressing God flippantly in prayer, although I think that's becoming more common. Uh, I think we have to think about, as Christians, what it means to grumble against the Lord. Are we taking God's name when we grumble against Him for the circumstances that He brings our way? Are, Are we taking God's name in vain when we claim that we have become angry with God? as if somehow God is unjust in what He has brought our way in circumstances. Those are all things, though, that I would still consider to be part of kind of the, the pool that we all know how to fish in. <laughs> I mean, that's where we're casting our rod, and, and we know what those things are. But there's some things that perhaps we don't think about, that, that we engage in, that are related to the third commandment. And I want to speak specifically to your younger to the younger audience, because sometimes as Christians, we grow up doing things and we don't know why we're doing them. We simply do them because mom and dad have taught us. Mom and dad are not doing this intentionally, but sometimes, I know I've done this as a father, you just get into the groove of life. You've explained it to your older children. They understand why you're doing what you're doing. Your younger children, they're just following the leader, right? And, And they don't understand why they're doing what they're doing anymore. Well, I want us to understand how our actions are related to the third commandment. And the third commandment, listen to me kids, the third commandment has a significant, uh, a significant impact on what we do at almost, or what you should be doing at every meal. When you pray before your meal to God, that is in relation to the third commandment. I remember as a child wondering at times why it is that we prayed before we started eating at every meal. Now, certainly you can look at the example from Scripture, right? Jesus, uh, Luke 9, verse 16, when, when Jesus feeds the 5,000, what does He do before He gives out the food? Well, He breaks the bread and He prays to God. He prays to God for, for the food that they've received. Also, at the institution of the Lord's Supper, Matthew twenty six twenty six, Jesus prays before He serves the meal, But there's more to uh, praying before a meal that is related to the third commandment. Ask yourself, what are you acknowledging when you pray before you begin eating? What you're doing is you're lifting up God's name as holy. You're setting it apart. You're saying to yourself, the food I'm about to enjoy is given to me by God. And so thanksgiving for your food is a way that you set apart God's name as holy. You are using Him, you are addressing Him with reverence and awe, with gratitude, acknowledging that He is the one who has given you the things that you are about to enjoy. So, what we understand is that praying before our meal is not just some kind of a hoop that we have to jump through, right? Uh, We don't wait for Uh, for dad or for mom to say, in Jesus' name, amen, before we attack the the plate, right? There is something going on. There is a reverencing of God's name that's going on when we're giving thanks to the Lord for the food that we receive. So our voices, in in effect, are hallowing the name of the Lord, which is the, the positive virtue that is required as part of the third commandment. Now, I want to add another wrinkle to that. Because it's all easy when you're living in a home where that's what you do. And you don't ever have to think about whether or not you're going to pray because if you don't think about praying, uh, one of the people that provides you the meal is going to say, have you prayed for your food, right? Mom and dad are going to challenge you on that. But there's more that will happen in your life. Maybe you're in that now already, but maybe you're in an environment at times where most people don't give thanks. Where, where most people don't acknowledge God as the giver of food. Maybe it's, uh, if, we, if you're older, maybe it's at work. Or maybe it's in the school cafeteria. Maybe it's with a group of friends in the neighborhood. Maybe it's uh, co-workers at, at a lunch in a, in a restaurant. Maybe you're visiting the home of, a, of an unbelieving friend. And, and, and they don't give thanks for the food. What, what do you do in those moments? Well, ask yourself, Since we know what we're saying when we give thanks to God for our food, ask yourself, what are you saying by your actions when you fail to acknowledge God in that moment? What are you doing to God's name? Are you lifting His name up as holy? Or are you causing His name to be thought of uh, in a lower way? Uh, It would be sinful to fail to direct thanks to God as a giver, to be ashamed of the Lord and in your shame, making his name common and des- degrading his high standing in your own eyes and in the eyes of the people who watch you just eat your food without acknowledging the one who gave it. Even if the person has no idea about God, you've missed an opportunity to hold, God, hold God's name aloft and say, you know who gave you this? You know, you know who provided this for you? It's the God of, of heaven and earth. He is the one who gave these things. Uh, so that failure to direct God as the giver is to take His name in vain in a sense. It's to use, make His name more common, to neglect His name. And, and so we must always acknowledge God. And one of the ways that we acknowledge God is prayer. We acknowledge God in prayer before our meal for ourselves but also for the people who are around us. So I want us to think about prayer before the meal. Now, there's another one that that we would consider low-hanging fruit as well when it comes to the third commandment, and that is blasphemy in entertainment. Now, this this category of blasphemy in entertainment is very difficult for Christians. It's very difficult in part because in almost all entertainment, Blasphemy is not seen as problematic. You can even recognize it when you watch a, a TV show that in part is, is bleeped out, right? You can watch these things on on, on television shows where they where they remove some of the, the, the vulgar the vulgarities. But what do they not bleep out? They don't bleep out blasphemy. Blasphemy is not seen as problematic. So so you can even have a censored video, as as they call it, and and they don't remove blasphemy. But that's not the main reason why this low-hanging fruit is difficult for the Christian to accept. This commandment and this application of the commandment is primarily difficult for the Christian because we like our entertainment. Because we like what we like. The Christian likes to be entertained and and prefers, in a sense, to be entertained over and against the holiness of God. Do you allow God's name to be blasphemed in your home? Why? Well, it's it's a good movie. It's a good show. Well, brothers and sisters, when we reason like that, aren't we making a value statement? Aren't we making an assessment about God's holiness? Aren't we saying in that moment, my entertainment is more important than protecting the holiness of God? The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. My friends, if we have allowed that to creep into our homes, we must turn away from it. We must repent